Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Emily Burt. Each week we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about the important goings-on in the charity world. This week we'll be joined by Julie Bentley, Chief Executive of Samaritans, to talk about the vital importance of supporting volunteers and staff, the need for a joined-up approach in services, and why core funding shouldn't be conditional on shiny new ideas. And after that, in Charity Change My Life, we hear from the head of an Iraqi women's rights organisation about how her work has changed her life for the better. But first, some of you may be aware of a new podcast launched by Third Sector last week looking into the burgeoning problem of knife crime. The series is called The Diff, and Emily, as the series editor, you are probably best placed to tell us more about it. Yes, um, I'm absolutely delighted that we now have the pilot series of The Diff out in the world. You will have seen it coming up on the Third Sector feed in the last week. Um, It's a new podcast concept that I've been working on with a very talented team of young producers since I came back from maternity leave in the summer. And what we're trying to do with this is championing the work of small charities and social enterprises. We do it by telling their stories and we focus on very specific cause areas, which is quite different to what we do on third sector a lot of the time. We tend to focus in the main um, title around the nuts and bolts of working behind the scenes. We don't actually look at the causes. So this is very fresh, interesting perspective for me as someone who's been reporting on the sector for several years. And as you say, our pilot mini-series, which is out now, focuses on four charities that take very different but all completely vital approaches to tackling the problem of knife crime and youth violence in the UK. Uh, our guests include the Benkin Cellar Trust, uh, the youth charity Street Doctors and Synergy Theatre, uh, which works in the criminal justice system. Have you listened? I have listened. I listened to episode three on my way home from work yesterday and I was completely blown away by that one in particular. Um, It was when you were at the Synergy Theatre speaking to some of the staff there and also a previous offender, I believe his name was Carl? Yes, Carl, who is also a member of staff. He's the learning and engagement assistant for adults at Synergy and he's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, what a storyteller. Um, He gave such a deeply personal account of his journey with Synergy, the situation that he was in before. And it really helped me certainly understand some of the root causes of knife crime with a really, really personal touch to it. So I highly recommend that you listen to all three episodes um, and particularly listen out for Carl in that third one. Yes, all three of those episodes are now live and I am actively seeking feedback from our podcast audience on them. So if you love the Third Sector podcast, if you've had a chance to listen to the diff, if there was something you enjoyed or something you absolutely hated, uh, please tell me. I do want to know. I've even set up a SpeakPipe link so you can actually send me a voice note if that is easier than an email. Um, We'll include that link in the show notes or you can be very traditional and just send me an email at emily.burt, that's B-U-R-T, at haymarket.com. I would love it if you would listen, share it with your friends and family or the person you're sitting next to on the tube right now. That would be terrific. Now for the main part of today's episode, we're delighted to be joined by Julie Bentley, 
Chief Executive of Samaritans. This month marks three years in post at Samaritans for Julie. She previously held Chief Executive positions at a range of other charities, including Action for Children and Girl Guiding, and spent over five years as Vice Chair for Shelter. Hi, Julie. Good morning. Lovely to be with you. As I just mentioned, it's a three-year anniversary for you. How have the last three years been? From a personal perspective, being at Samaritans uh, the past three years has been fantastic. Obviously, it's been a tough three years for the for the charity sector and actually for the whole of our society. But Samaritans is an organisation that I had always wanted to be part of. Um, and in fact, everybody within Samaritans will have heard me say this already. But I applied to be the chief executive of Samaritans, what must now be... 17 or 18 years ago, uh, when I was much, much younger and earlier in my chief exec career. Um, And rightly so, I didn't even get shortlisted for the job because I, back then on reflection, had nowhere near the level of experience I would need to lead an organisation such as this. So second time around when I applied again, it was obviously my time and I'm just really, really proud to be part of the Samaritans family. It's a privilege to go to work every day, literally. That's fantastic. What a lovely opener. So we would love to hear a little bit about what Samaritan's strategy is at present for sort of attracting and retaining your volunteers. I know that they are a vital part of what your charity does. And well, as with every other charity, we've been through a severe disruption in the last few years, firstly with the COVID-19 pandemic and then the cost of living crisis. So in this kind of quite challenging current environment, I would love to hear about some of the things that you've had to overcome, the solutions that you've had to develop in order to address those kind of challenges that are facing volunteers today. Mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, it really is, has been an unprecedented few years, hasn't it? I mean, during the pandemic, Samaritan's volunteers were designated key workers in recognition of the fact that we needed to keep our our service open uh, for seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Um, And so we were very grateful that they were designated key workers, which meant that they could freely travel uh, from home into branches, etc. We did have a challenge in the same way that many charities that are delivered by volunteers had, which was we had quite an attrition of volunteers um, as a result of the pandemic and people needing to shield, etc. And we actually um, lost about 30% of our volunteers during that period. Um, I'm, I'm pleased to say that now now um, we're back at about a, a turnover rate of about 20%, which is sector average, really. But I think that my personal view is that things have changed, tilted on an axis quite significantly since COVID. Um, and certainly we're seeing that impacting volunteering, I think, across the charity sector. I think that the way that people want to give their time and to support organisations is changing. And if you're an organisation like Samaritans, that relies on volunteers, then we need to think about how we are going to do things differently to continue to be attractive to people. Because there's so many brilliant causes that people could give their time to. Um, Why would they choose Samaritans? At the moment, we have around 14,000 listening volunteers. And when I say listening volunteers, that's the folk who you know pick up the phone, answer the email, answer the web chat. But really importantly, we also have around 4,000 support volunteers and they are people who are holding things together and keeping our branches going. They're doing the IT, they're doing the health and safety, etc. And they are just as crucial in the delivery of the Samaritan service. 
But the world has changed so much since Samaritans started. It's 70 years this year since Samaritans was launched. Uh, and, and back then, things were a little bit different. You know, we had volunteers um, sleeping in branches overnight with bedrooms in branches and camp beds on floors. They were local numbers, not national numbers. And Samaritans kept the fact that they were a Samaritan secret because they were local people providing support to local other local people. And of course, now our service is delivered through the national number, 116. 6123 and we don't have um, as many folks needing to sleep in branches because of the way that we now deliver the service. I think in terms of attracting more volunteers and being more flexible this is a huge challenge I think for the sector and especially when you're trying to deliver a service like Samaritans we need commitment it isn't something that you can necessarily very easily dip in and dip out of to be a Samaritan volunteer. It's a huge commitment. Um, The training is a significant commitment. But having said that, what we understand is that people are not able to give as much now, or they're choosing to do things in a slightly different way. So traditionally, you know, the volunteers might have been from an older demographic, uh, more frequently retired People's lives are different. Now, retired folks, many of them have caring responsibilities for grandchildren. In this cost of living crisis, we're seeing some older folks needing to go back to work, you know, to earn some income, completely understandably. And so attitudes to life have changed as well. Many people are working hybrid and remotely more, and maybe they're less inclined to leave home and go into a branch. And people have a higher expectation, I think, around work-life balance and, and leisure time. The other really important thing for me about needing to become more flexible, of course, is that, you know, many of our older ways of being weren't inclusive. And that is another really big driving factor for us in thinking about how we do get more flexibility into Samaritans. You know, back in the day, expenses weren't paid. Now, of course, they are. But we know that many long-standing charities, historically, our image has been more of our volunteers being white, older, middle class. And if we're going to really fulfil that aim of Samaritans being accessible to the widest range of people, then we really need to work harder to create the conditions in which we're going to attract that diversity of people. So a few of the things that we've been doing. Back in 2020, we we began a programme of work to think about how we were going to bring more flexibility into Samaritans and how we were going to do that. Obviously, the pandemic created the opportunity for us to trial delivering our training virtually rather than in person, which obviously helps folks to go through that intensive 10 weeks of training. And we now have a training model that is hybrid, which you know works really well for people. But how can people actually deliver the service? So traditionally in Samaritans, the commitment would be as much as 48 weeks in the year with shifts of four hours a week and a requirement to work night shifts as well. And of course, as a 24-7-365 service, we do need to know that we can rely on our volunteers. But as I said, we've also got to recognise that it isn't good enough to just keep saying you must commit. We have got to adapt to ensure that our volunteering model is fit for the future, uh, if we're going to continue to attract fabulous folk as we do. So some of the things we did, we launched two hubs to pilot more flexible volunteering packages. So our London hub was established uh, in the heart of the city, really, to be more accessible to city workers. And the idea was that we would attract folks as they finish their working day in the city and to come and do um, a shift with Samaritans before getting on the trains and heading back out of London. 
the, the space that we have the hub in is larger, which means we can have more people on duty at a time. And the duties are, are more flexible. So some folk may only come a couple of times a month or they may do longer or shorter shifts. And, and the London City Hub delivers our web chat service. Another approach that we've been trying is that we partnered with Anglia Ruskin University. And that was to launch another hub pilot approach for students, um, students who are on courses like nursing, social work, mental health, and they've undergone our training and they are now helping to deliver our, our online chat service. And there's several benefits to this. One is, of course, we're taking the volunteering opportunity to where they are. We are giving them skills that will help them in their careers as they move forward. And we are introducing Samaritans to a younger demographic of people to hopefully engage them in, in Samaritans and what we're about earlier on in their life as well. And then another really interesting thing that we have been piloting is remote volunteering, uh, and that's within our email service. So in order to increase the number of volunteers, but also to reach more people who might not feel able to volunteer for us if the only option was to come into one of our branches, we've been recruiting people to train to join the hub. They follow the same training as our branch volunteers, but they're recruited and trained virtually and they deliver the service virtually from home. The email hub, remote volunteering, offers an opportunity to those people, such as people who live in very remote locations and couldn't possibly get to a branch, maybe to people who are living with a disability. That means actually it might hinder their ability to access a branch. All of these are ways that we are seeking to open Samaritans up to more volunteers so that in the future our volunteer demographic continues to grow, continues to flourish. But also we have uh, that richness that more diversity of people includes as well. It's actually hard. It's really hard, I would say. You know, I think that historically we had a kind of one size fits all model of being a volunteer in Samaritans back in the day. And we are now living in a world where we can't expect everybody to fit into that same um, mould, if you like, of what being a Samaritans volunteer is. And I think all of us across the sector are, are facing this challenge now. So how can we adapt the volunteering offer to be more individual, to be more personal for people, whilst also ensuring that our service needs are met and we can still deliver the service? It's not easy, <laughs> is, is the bottom line. But it's a challenge we have to embrace, I think. So it sounds like accessibility and flexibility are the order of the day in terms of getting your volunteer base back up to the level that it was before the pandemic and also getting new groups of people in. But how about when you've got your healthy volunteer base and, of course, your team supporting them and you need to promote their well-being? As you say, it's a really onerous volunteering job to be doing. How do you look after the people who are working for you? I think being part of Samaritans is a privilege, I said at the beginning. It's, it's also not an easy choice to work in an organisation like Samaritans. Um, it is very demanding. It's difficult and distressing content often for volunteers, but also for many of our staffing colleagues as well. And I also think that the long term effects following the pandemic, we're still feeling that, I think, across the sector, um, especially when it comes to well-being of our, our colleagues. It's a combination of with the cost of living crisis, you know, immediately on top of the pandemic. I think it's a combination of you know more demand for services, diminishing resources to deliver that 
And that can really take its toll on employees, particularly in the charity sector, because, you know, in the charity sector, we have folk who don't just come to work to do a job. They come to work because they believe what we do. You know, we all believe in what we do in these organisations. And obviously, as Samaritans, you would expect us to be concerned. And we try really hard, I think, and hope to foster a supportive working environment that gives colleagues the opportunity to say when they're struggling, to say when they need help. We have a range of different support for colleagues, um, as do many organisations. So we have trained mental health first aiders, trained by Mental Health First Aid England. Obviously, we have an employee assistant programme that has um, a 24-hour helpline, annual access to counselling. Unique maybe to Samaritans and and some other mental health organisations, I would say, We know that some of our staff are exposed to um, difficult content. And so we have dedicated what we call a reflective practice support for them. And they can book as an individual or as a team to talk with that person. And we also have monthly sessions uh, for relevant colleagues with a vicarious trauma therapist. We also obviously have lots of internal learning and training for our staffing colleagues. And lots of that is focused around dealing with emotionally challenging situations and then of course you know things like flexible working um, healthy annual leave we also have additional well-being days for our staff on top of our additional leave we have a very very flexible approach to when people are in the office we don't currently mandate any minimum days uh, in the workplace so very hybrid approach since the pandemic And we constantly are checking in um, and encouraging our managers and supporting our managers to be able to ask the questions because, you know, we're Samaritans, so we need to be able to be good at listening to our colleagues. But then, of course, on the volunteer side, the volunteers are the people who are picking the phone up every day or answering the email or responding to the web chat. And we have a very high level of support in Samaritans for our volunteers. So within all of our Samaritan services, Our volunteers are supported by um, a shift leader. So at the end of every Samaritan shift, the Samaritans who have been taking calls will debrief with the shift leader. We'll talk about the calls that they've taken. And if they've had any particularly difficult calls, then that shift leader will make sure that the next day they check in with them, give them a call, drop them a message to see how they're doing. And our branches also have what we call Samaritan Samaritans, and they're there to support volunteers should they want to talk things through. And our larger branches that have, you know, many, many volunteers in them um, also have whole teams of supporter carers. So they're there to ensure that our volunteers are well, that they aren't taking home with them. Uh, as many of the difficult things that they hear. So it's so important to us to make sure that that support is always in place. We're not perfect and we don't always get it right. But I think that the most important thing that we can do is to keep asking the question, to keep doing the checking in and to keep saying, are we getting support right? I'm certainly noticing much higher levels across the charity sector of difficulty, of stress and anxiety and people feeling like things are tough at the moment because, frankly, things are tough at the moment, aren't they? We We are in difficult times at the moment. It is such a tough time. And I was having a meeting with a group of charity leaders yesterday and said, you know, what you have to remember is that you had three years of pandemic. We're now going into the third year of the cost of living crisis next year. And all of that comes on the back of 10 years of austerity. 
So I think we have a tendency to really focus on the pandemic and we have a tendency, of course, to focus on the cost of living crisis because this is where we are in the moment. But actually, you go back to 2019 and it wasn't roses and sunshine in 2019. It's been an incredibly difficult period for the sector and we have more volatility ahead. We're going into a difficult winter and then next year, 2024, there's going to be a lot of change. Um, a big point of change, I think, being that we are, of course, going to have a general election and quite possibly we're going to have a change of government. I would love to hear your take on what you think the sort of political climate, the campaigning climate is right now for charities and how you feel that those kind of government relationships are affecting the sector. Um, well, I think it's been difficult, I think, for charities in terms of government relations and influencing government. There's been a lot of profile around the role of charities in campaigning um, as well recently, hasn't there? I think there's no doubt there's there's been some serious hostility from some politicians uh, around charities speaking out. I don't think that charities should stop campaigning and influencing and speaking out. In fact, it makes me really angry when I hear narratives that you know charities should know their place. Well, we do know our place and our place is advocating for our service users. So I think from my perspective, we should be campaigning as charities and we should know and have confidence that it is a legitimate part of our activities. I think at the moment, obviously, we are you know, likely to be going into an election. It's going to be difficult to influence. It's always difficult to influence in times leading up to general elections, isn't there? There's a, a kind of a gap. It feels a bit like everybody's holding their breath to wait and see what will happen. But actually, it has been extraordinarily difficult, I would say, to influence for several years now. There has been an extraordinary, I mean, an extraordinary number of ministerial changes uh, in the current parliament. And we have been, frankly, in the ludicrous situation where there isn't even time for a new minister to reply to welcome letters before they're, they're not in post anymore. And I think my colleague gave me a stat, which actually I had to check myself because I didn't think it could be right. But for example, we're now on the 13th prison minister since 2010. Such a degree of flux and instability makes it incredibly hard for charities to build meaningful relationships, to land important messages. And the most important thing about that is that the people who suffer as a result of that are those people that we're here to serve, who are often already some of the most marginalised people in our society. So we need to keep our foot on the pedal. We need to keep seeking to get the messages that we all have as charities in front of decision makers. But it is an incredibly difficult environment at the moment to do that. It has been for some time. And I don't actually see it getting hugely better for some time to come because of the lack of flux and instability that we've seen so far. And then thinking about those people that Samaritans is there to serve, you really are at the front line of hearing and understanding people's problems. What's your perspective on where the need is currently the greatest and what the biggest problems are that people are encountering in the cost of living crisis? And do you have any thoughts on how other charities or organisations more generally can be working better together to really focus and address those problems that are greatest today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's no surprise, is it, that the cost of living crisis is having a huge, huge impact on people. So some of our stats are that our volunteers are currently answering around 400 calls a day from people specifically on the subject of finances, worried about finances, unemployment, 
our volunteers are hearing from people that they're unable to afford the basics, food, heating, and that people are cutting down on everything wherever they can, really. I'm a firm believer in working in collaboration. I don't believe in territorial leadership of organisations. You know, frankly, we are here to serve the most vulnerable people who are at risk of um, suicide, of self-harm, and Samaritans alone is not going to be able to meet all of the need there is there. But also I see one of our roles as Samaritans as supporting other organisations as well. So, for example, we work with Trust for Trust at the moment um, and we're providing some training to Trust for Trust for their volunteers so that they can actually um, have the resilience and the skills around listening to people that they need whilst they're doing their role in food banks. Because, you know, obviously it's a tremendous organisation, Trust for Trust, and um, their volunteers are just as fab as Samaritans. And they also see and hear some hugely difficult things. So we're able to help equip them with the skills to be able to kind of weather that, really. We asked, I think it was last year or early this year, we worked with some folk about their experiences of economic disadvantage and suicide and self-harm. And they told us that changing life circumstances and difficulties with engaging in labour market were impacting that caring responsibilities And really importantly, the difficulty of getting access to proper support was really impacting their experiences around suicide and self-harm. And one of the things that we heard from them was their sense of being confronted by a system of all sorts of different touch points and providers, but one that wasn't joined up and, and lacked compassion. And one of the things that we really need to see is more connection and more of a joined up approach. So we need to see money and wellbeing support brought together. Uh, People who are seeking mental health support often need financial support. Rather than them being two separate places, we need them to be coming together. Um, So one example of how to put that into practice would be the government breathing space scheme, which offers respite for problems around debt. One of the things that we know is that uh, many folk who take their life haven't been in contact with a medical professional leading up to that point, but that there have been many touch points with other um, arenas, you know, so job centres and social services and housing teams. We need to equip all of this social care system with the skills to recognise and understand when somebody may be in the hopeless place of considering suicide so that they can signpost people to help more. So. I think for me, one of the the biggest single things, which is a big thing, is this more joined up approach across government departments, across health and social care that we really need to crack. Um, I mean, the reality is in terms of suicide, you know, the suicide rates are are no lower now than they were 20 years ago. If we're going to really, really crack that, then it's only going to be across government department, but also across health and social care approach that's going to achieve that. So there's much to be done. And I firmly believe we're not going to do it in isolation, any one organisation or body. We're going to have to work together to achieve that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, Mike Adamson, who is uh, the now recently departed chief executive of the British Red Cross, recently said in a speech, you know, we're one of the largest organisations in the sector, but we're so small in relation to the scale of need. We cannot achieve the outcomes we seek on our own. Yeah. And when you look at the state of the world, we're needed more than ever. Absolutely. And of course, the other massive challenge that we have at the moment 
again across society but the charity sector is really facing and having to deal with is of course you know the financial challenges that we have as a society and as a sector I think that the NCVO data the almanac this year I think it showed that for the first time we were seeing a fall in charity sector income and it's such a tough climate for the sector and we are sadly seeing organizations closing and I don't think that you know we're going to see the end of that all of us are really struggling One of the really huge frustrations for me is how often possible funding sources are restricted to new and innovative. Uh, And there are so many services under pressure. We don't always have shiny new projects. What we and most other charities really need is consistent core funding from government and from other funders. And we need to move away from funders seeing core funding as a kind of, of lesser interest, because frankly, at Samaritans, our core bread and butter business is keeping people alive. And I don't see how that absolutely remarkable fact can be anything other than compelling to a funder. There are some great examples of a few funders who really do understand. Pairs Foundation would be one. They make long-term commitments to charities and they fund core. But we really need government and all funders to have a much longer-term view um, about the sustainability of our charity sector. Because without our charity sector, the whole health and social care fabric of our society would be in serious jeopardy if it wasn't for the charity sector. Absolutely. Well, I know that certainly Lucinda and I are very much looking forward to seeing you leading a bold collaborative sector forward over, I hope, at least the next three years at Samaritans. Julie Bentley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Now we move on to Charity Changed My Life, in which we bring you stories of people whose lives have been transformed for the better thanks to the work of charities. And this week, we are taking you to Iraq to hear from Dua Fala. Dua volunteered and worked at the Swiss NGO Mercy Hands before securing the top job at its sister organisation, the grassroots NGO Mercy Path for Women's Affairs, which strives to achieve gender equality for Iraqi women. Um, My name is uh, Dua Fala. I am uh, 34 years old. I'm from Iraq, Baghdad. I work uh, 11 uh, years uh, in a Mercy Hand organization. Uh, then I promoted to be an uh, executive director for another organization, Mercy Path. Um, Mercy Path is a women-led NGO funded by a group of Iraqi women. We look to achieve gender equality in Iraq by providing protection services to women, empowering them and advocating for women's rights. After 2011, many people in Iraq are displaced from their homes, either from religious or political reason. I started to make a food basket and distribute them to the IDB's families. It was a wonderful feeling to see the smile on the kids' faces. But (laughs) in the same time, I was sad not to be able to provide all their needs. So I started to look for a humanitarian organization that have the same passion that I have. I joined with Mercy Hand as a volunteer Then I become a PR director. Mercy Hand changed many things in me. We are like a family, actually. And I have changed from a woman that sits at home to a woman that can achieve her goals without fear. And now 
Mercy Path continue to give me this support and energy to keep on going. Uh, Mercy Hand show me the right way to use my humanitarian skills and encourage me to be an active person in the community by supporting women to women. I feel so happy and at the same time I feel that uh, I have a power to give it to these uh, women. That was Dua Falah, Executive Director of the grassroots NGO Mercy Path for Women's Affairs in Iraq and formerly a staff member at the Swiss NGO Mercy Hands. And normally Charity Changed My Life features people who are on the receiving end of charity. But I think Dua's story shows really nicely how someone's ability to respond to the need around them has changed through her job with an NGO and enriched her life accordingly. As she said, I have changed from a woman that sits at home to a woman who can achieve her goals without fear. And if you'd like your charity to be featured, we'd love to hear from you. Details of how to get in touch and submit a story idea featuring one of your service users are in the show notes. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we'll be weighing up the pros and cons of a four-day working week with guests from Friends of the Earth and Gingerbread. But for this week, thank you to our guest, Julie Bentley, and of course, our studio producer, Till Owen.